when I look at what will draw us together to conquer this greater battle, I think Bitcoin is the uh, one of the candidates we should take seriously here. Um, I also think from a American value standpoint, oftentimes in fourth turnings, you mentioned that we go back to some traditional values. And if we look at the different American republics, I think Ben Franklin uh, said from your book, Neil, it was during the Constitutional Convention. They said, what happened in there? And he said, well, we made a republic if you can keep it or something like that. And you mentioned all these different implementations of America in between these different seculums. And I could see uh, Bitcoin being the foundation or the, the orange attractor or the orange party, orange flag, whatever you want to call it, that does bring people together. And the lines would be drawn more on a uh, bottom-up basis. This would be people versus centralized institutions that we don't trust. Um, and, and I could see that being a foundation of a new financial system, although it doesn't have to be in order to serve as this um, situation here. What's up, Sats fans? Welcome to Swan Signal Live. I have another excellent episode for you guys coming right up. But before we get started, I want to bring up Pacific Bitcoin. It is the conference brought on by Swan that's happening October 5th and 6th in beautiful Santa Monica. Um, you can go to PacificBitcoin.com to check it out today and use the promo code SIGNAL for 21% off those tickets. Uh, Pacific Bitcoin is an amazing conference full of great speakers that covered both the Bitcoin and the macro environment. Um, so check it out, PacificBitcoin.com. Um, I am unbelievably excited to welcome a special guest today. Um, we have author Neil Howe coming on. He is very popular for his work uh, as a demographer and for as an author for The Fourth Turning, as well as his new book, which I have right here, The Fourth Turning is Here. And so this just came out. I read it. It is fantastic. So I can't wait to talk to him. And with him is Brandon Quidham, who is the uh, head of marketing over at Swan, but he's also an author and, and he's come on to a lot of podcasts and he summarized Neil Howe's work through a Bitcoin lens. And I think this is just going to be a fantastic conversation between re two really uh, intelligent individuals. So I want to welcome onto the show, Neil Howe and Brandon Quidham. Welcome, guys. Hey, great to be here. Brandon, what's up? Long time coming. Super excited for this one. Yeah, so um, I think it might be helpful. I, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be pretty familiar with your work, Neil. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but The Fourth Turning is a pretty popular book in the Bitcoin community. Um, it, it's a really great kind of reference, of this big long-term cycle, big macro, how you kind of imagine things are headed right now. And it's come out to be pretty uh, prescient in terms of your predictions when you read it. You wrote it in the '90s, um, but a lot of people are familiar with it. So let's just jump into the fourth turning. And so maybe explain okay. what is the fourth turning first off, and maybe um, where we are in the cycle. I mean, you could summarize it however big or small you want, but let's just start out with what is the fourth turning, where we are in the cycle, and let's uh, hit it off from there. Great. Well, let me let me just jump into it from maybe a a perspective that some some readers may be unaware, and that is that when Bill and I started writing about this, we did not uh, initially intend to write about cycles of history at all. Uh, Bill mm -hmm. and I were interested in generational differences. And in fact, when we, when we wrote our first book, Generations, back in 1991, uh, our object was to write about history in a completely different way, which is to write it as a succession of generational biographies looking at how each generation is shaped differently by history and uh, shaped differently in its its values, its uh, behavior, its attitudes, 
and goes on later as uh, in, in midlife leaders as parents, uh, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years later to shape history differently and then shape the next generation. And that led to the idea that there's an intrinsic link between differing generational personalities, which we discovered, you know, not just between uh, boomers and their parents or between Xers and millennials, but going all the way back to the 17th century and uh, early colonial America, really from the Great Migration to New England in the 1630s onward. And it led to our intuition that if there's a sequence in generational personalities, it must be tied to a sequence in history in itself. And in fact, it answered the great mystery that's often intrigued historians, why this nation seems to have its huge periods of civic, um, cre uh, creative destruction of civic life, these times when we rebuild the outer world of uh, infrastructure and politics and economics and uh, just our constitution, uh, socially, how we live together, or the rules of that. We, we do this about once every human lifetime. We did it in the last quarter of the 17th century, the period of you know, Bacon's Rebellion and, and Phillips, King Philip's War and the Glorious Revolution. We did it about a, a, a human lifetime later in the American Revolution. We did it again a lifetime later in the Civil War, again, the Great Depression and World War II, and here we are again today. And roughly halfway in between, we had these we've had these big periods of awakening when we rebuild the inner world of values and culture and religion. And very conveniently, we, we actually number those. We call them first great awakening, second great awakening, and so forth. And what that led to, ultimately, many years later, after Bill and I started writing about generations, was the idea that a modern history itself, not just in America, we discovered, but other countries as well, had a natural cycle uh, of social changes in mood. We call them turnings. Each one lasts about the length of a generation. And during each turning, a new generation is, is entering childhood and a new generation is coming of age into adulthood and so on. And, and these turnings come in cycles of four and they correspond approximately to the seasons, um, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And right now we're in the fourth turning, which is the winter season. And we can talk a little bit about the characteristics of those four seasons if you want and the different kinds of social moods and what happens to different kinds of institutions, you know, what happens in our popular culture, what happens in song, what happens in politics, what happens in family life, what happens on university campuses, what in other words, whatever aspect of life you want to talk about, we can talk about the, the, how the mood shifts. But I think that may be a good introduction to, to uh, the overall kind of uh, pattern or perspective, the, the pattern perspective we see uh, running in history. Right. And so the fourth turning is, um, you know, it's an era of crisis um, after the third turning, which is unraveling, which, you know, you talk about, you know, there's a supply and demand for order. And in the third turning, there's a low desire or demand for order. And then there's low supply for low order. Low supply of order. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, but in the fourth turning... And everyone's pretty happy with that, right? Yeah, everything's yeah. pretty happy about that. Um, but in the fourth turning, that kind of changes, right? Um, and you talk about how there's usually a catalyst. 
and then there is a regeneracy. And and when we look at the current fourth turn, turn, turning, I was wondering if you could talk about what was the catalyst and what do you see as like the regeneracy of this current fourth turning? Well, the catalyst, um, every every fourth turning has a catalyst. I should say every fourth turning, first of all, has a precursor. Mm. And that is a, usually an event which foreshadows the eventual mood. Um, actually, not every fourth turning has it, but it's it's most fourth turnings do. And it's very convenient. For instance, the precursor for the current fourth turning was 9-11, right? When for a very brief time, about a year, year and a half, America was uh, suddenly absolutely catalyzed, right? Practically to fight a war. I don't know if you remember, Pre- President G.W. Bush's rating went up to over 90%. Uh, we had a we had a campaign throughout America to rat on your neighbor. It was called see something, tell, you know, see, see, see something tells, tells, I can't even remember what it's called. See, yeah, wow. see, see something, tell somebody, right? Say something, say something, oh, yeah, yeah, see something right. say something. And you still see it actually on Amtrak trains and in public places. But it was, it was absolutely alarming to people who recall it at the time, right? How, how absolutely overnight we can be galvanized. Before the Great Depression, World War II, there's World War I. Before the Civil War, where there was a Mexican-American war. And these were brief periods of incredible enthusiasm about national community. Um, the actual catalyst for the current fourth turning was the GFC, um, a global financial crisis. And I think as that is one secular trend, as the world becomes more economically integrated and we all become more dependent on markets, uh, uh, that it's very likely that global financial crises, financial crises in general, will become more eligible as catalysts for a crisis, right? Because we are also dependent on it. The last fourth turning also started with a global financial crisis. That was Black Thursday, 1929, right? And that really started that fourth turning era. Earlier fourth turnings have often been associated in some way with financial crises, the, uh, the crash of uh, 1857, for instance, right before Lincoln's election. By the way, without that crash, the Republicans may well not have won that election, interestingly enough. Uh, it actually turned Pennsylvania and a couple of other states suddenly toward the kind of national Republican plan that, uh, that the Free Soil Party and later the Republicans actually advocated. Otherwise, they would have voted you know, either for probably for the Democrats, right, that were obviously not so much in favor of, uh, of government uh, planning. The American Revolution was very much shaped by the crash of, uh, of uh, uh, 1772, which actually started in India with a huge cyclone and, and massive starvation among the Indians. It actually caused, caused a crisis in the East Indian Company, which forced the East Indian Company to save them. <laughs> the parliament actually enacted uh, uh, allow the East Indian Company to sell tea directly to the colonies without it having to go through any of the import duties in London, which would actually unheard of. And in the, one of the oddities of history, that actually triggered the Boston Tea Party in, in a way that's completely outlandish to explain. But actually, the Boston Tea Party uh, uh, was, was triggered even though the price of tea with the British tax on it was actually lower than it had been before because it had avoided all the London imposts. But just because it had even a slight British tax on it, Sam Adams and all of his patriots, right, were not going to allow that to come into U.S. ports. So in a way, that even had a triggering impact. But look, economic crises 
are having, I think, a greater and greater impact on society. And I think are more eligible as triggers of, a, of what we call catalysts of a fourth turning. Your next question was about regeneracy. When do we actually begin to, you know, the first response to a crisis is shock, complete lack of trust in the system, uh, outrage, but mainly just kind of a numbness. I mean, you know, everyone is sort of uh, 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 demoralized by how the system does not seem to work at all, utterly unjust. And the things we need to do to sort of recover, you know, trickle down, you know, with, let's just suppress volatility at the top and bail everyone out, right, which is what we did. You know, thousands of businesses got bailed out. Um, and then you had the Tea Party and you had everything else. You had the 99% movement and so on. <clears throat> but what finally happened was, is that we had suddenly this huge accentuation and acceleration in sort of this culture war division in America, which I think actually suddenly reached a, um, a, a catalytic point uh, with the 2016 election. And I would actually date the first regeneracy to the 2016 election because it was at that time on when suddenly America was divided into <clears throat> two mutually exclusive political tribes, right? Red zone, blue zone, Trump won. The red, the blue zone declared a resistance, I don't know, a resistance movement in Washington. Like, you know, the Germans had just moved into Paris. I mean, you know, and I, I live here next to DC, by the way. So I, I remember that very well. And it was sort of incredible, uh, you know, with all the impeachment proceedings and all the rest, a, a large movement of really non-cooperation with the new regime, and then, of course, when, you know, then came along 2020, uh, Trump lost and you had the Stop to Steal movement. And, and now basically you have two regimes almost declaring each other illegitimate. They won't talk to each other. There's no conversation in, in Washington, D.C. anymore. And I've lived in D.C. for more years than perhaps I ever wanted to, but I've been around here. Um, and when I first came here uh, back in the late 80s, uh, People from different parties still talk to each other all the time. They socialized, you know, they, they made deals. There's no conversation anymore. You know what I mean? You have, yeah. you have two different groups. They, they are really hostile, warring camps. And I think it's kind of scary to think of how, we've, how far we've come in this country. It reminds me a little bit of the, the North and South just before the Civil War. <clears throat> the churches all separated. All the uh, the 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 civic organizations all separated in different camps, and finally the parties themselves separated. Right? You 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 had the Whigs. You know, first first the Whigs died as a national party. Then ultimately in eight, in eighteen sixty the 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 uh, the uh, Democrats died as a national party. They tried to revive a more Southern version of the Democrats with with John Breckinridge, but he lost to Lincoln. Lincoln only won barely 40% of the vote, but he was still, still elected president. In a way, you could say that America today is what America would have been in 1863 or 64 had the South not seceded. <laughs> think okay. about it that way. Imagine okay. if the South had not seceded. It's very interesting. People don't think about that. But uh, Lincoln once promised as a as a way to stave off this uh, this um, secession movement by the South, he said, "If it will make any difference, I will favor an amendment to the Constitution that would guarantee slavery forever in the South." 
Wow. Because remember, all the Republican Party was to stop the spread of slavery to new states. But he said, I'll guarantee if you guys really like slavery, I'll just guarantee it to you guys, which is amazing. You think in retrospect, the 13th Amendment, instead of an amendment to free slaves forever, would have been an amendment to guarantee slavery. It's, it's interesting to think about, right, how yeah. history might have moved. Um, but there was a secession, and that led to very rapidly to war, obviously total yeah, war yeah. in this case. But this is where we are today. Um, and and uh, the, the, the question I ask in my book is there will be another regeneracy because this regeneracy has kind of died out. It's sort of lost its uh, its motive force, you may say. We're kind of tired of it. I, I don't know anyone who's enthusiastic about this rematch that we may well see in uh, in 2024. And many of the four attorneys have had re second regeneracies, okay. and those have been fascinating and very very often unpredictable. Um, Anyway, that's kind of my, we can go on and talk about the rest of the fourth turning if you want. Yeah, no, we'll let's, uh, started. all right. Yeah. So we have this catalyst, we have the global financial crisis. Um, and then you have this first regeneracy of this fourth turning, um, where you have this kind of red versus blue, a lot of rising populism, discontent. Um, and and I would add to that, in addition, you have this sudden um, politics of fear. I mean, the other thing that's happened is typical of fourth turnings. No one's voting out of love for their own candidate. They're only voting to make sure the other candidate, yeah, the, other, the other team doesn't lose. Exactly. And so, you, you know, nine out of 10 Democrats say that if the Republicans take power, this country will be changed forever in a way that, that we'll never be able to come back from. And it's the same way on the other side, right? It's the same way with the Republicans. It's like, It'll be socialism and, and woke America forever. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's each side has this Manichaean end of days perspective with the other side taking power. And that's a powerful psychology that's hard to get out of. Um, Definitely. Uh, and, and I would say one other thing, and that is everyone voter participation rates are up to century high levels, right? Everyone's voting. So say what you might about Donald Trump. He has certainly solved that problem in America, right? Everyone's, everyone wants to go to the voting booth today. Well, you know, I want to get to you, Brandon. I know you're there. <laughs> uh, you I'm know, in the, global, in the global financial crises, uh, something else happened, which was uh, Bitcoin was invented. Bitcoin came around. Um, a lot of people see that as a response to the global financial crisis. And it's grown since then throughout this fourth turning um, you came across Neil's work, and I'd I love to just hear why it impacted you so much and kind of why you started to incorporate Bitcoin or see it through a Bitcoin lens, which uh, led you to write a really popular piece kind of summarizing Neil Howe's work, looking through a Bitcoin lens. Um, let's start with just like why you respect his work so much, why it attracted you so much, and then why you decided to write about Bitcoin. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Um, so let's rewind to 2020, maybe March, April, May, something in there. COVID happens. The world's going crazy. I'm stuck at home trying to make sense of the world. And as an obsessive introvert who likes to observe the world and complexity and patterns and try to make sense of things, I started reading like a crazy person, book after book. And honestly, I went sort of manic for a while, just stuck inside and, and studying and came across the fourth turning. I have no idea how it hit my radar. 
but read the book three times. Everything started to make sense a little bit more with this lens, uh, maybe not mapping one-to-one -one like any model could never do. However, it was the best model that I could use to make sense of the world. And so then I started looking at it through a Bitcoin lens or, or through orange tinted glasses, as we like to say, uh, which is a funny critique of Bitcoiners. And it's 100 percent true. We try to jam Bitcoin into everything. <laughs> However, when I started to look at the fourth turning and, and looking at how you described um, how this resolution co could come about, I was trying to figure out what the catalyst is, what the peak is. OK, the catalyst in 08 makes sense in 09. But what's the what's the climax of the crisis going to be? At the time, I thought it was COVID. I was like, okay, we'll all come together and beat this uh, invisible enemy. That obviously turned out not to be true. In fact, it just uh, drove a larger wedge in between red team, blue team. And so that's obviously not it. And then I start looking at the ways you describe, okay, what? how would you even know if you found the climax if you did find it? And then you start looking at things like trust and the supply and demand of order and how we need to have a unifying force that allows us to come together red and blue to say, oh, there's an external catalyst that's existential to our country. Maybe that's rising China um, coming over and we feel threatened for our way of life. And so we put down our petty red versus blue, or maybe it's more like the civil war where there's North versus South, as you mentioned, or maybe it's like the revolutionary war, which was kind of a hybrid between a civil war and, and sort of an external war. And when I put all these pieces together, um, <laughs> to no surprise, Bitcoin started to come up in my mind. And I think that the, to stay on the politics one, which we mostly talked about, uh, we can save geopolitics or, or financial stuff later. But what I've observed is that Bitcoin is a mm -hmm. uh, political movement at its, at its core. And this political movement does not align to red or blue. Um, although maybe historically the red team has been a little more open to the ideals, but I think that's more of just a function of its stage of growth, right? It's less than 15 years old, so uh, still very young. Um, but what I see is both sides of the aisle have tons of things to benefit from here in their own terms. And so when I look at what will draw us together to conquer this greater battle, I think Bitcoin is the uh, one of the candidates we should take seriously here. Um, I also think from a American values standpoint. Oftentimes in fourth turnings, you mentioned that we go back to some traditional values. And if we look at the different American republics, I think Ben Franklin uh, said from your book, Neil, it was during the Constitutional Convention. They say, what happened in there? And he said, well, we made a republic if you can keep it or something like that. And you mentioned all these different implementations of America in between these different seculums. And I could see uh, Bitcoin being the foundation or the, the orange attractor or the orange party, orange flag, whatever you want to call it, that does bring people together. And the lines would be drawn more on a uh, bottom up basis. This would be people versus centralized institutions that we don't trust. Um, and, and I could see that being a foundation of a new financial system, although it doesn't have to be in order to serve as this um, situation here. But um, maybe we just stop there and keep it domestic for now before we look big picture. But uh, I would love to hear your reactions, Nick, uh, Neil. I know you have some uh, less favorable views of Bitcoin. So, yeah, let's talk about that a bit. You know, I, I, I'm not favorable or unfavorable. I, I guess I always think um, I always think about society and social trust and the institutions as people understand it. And, you know, there's technology on the one hand and there's what society does with the technology on the other and to understand to understand what the technology actually means for all of us. It's depend, it all depends on what we want from that technology. 
And uh, I actually talk about that quite a bit in the book because people often want to know, want to understand how could there be this cycle in social moods when you have technologies that are just invented seemingly at random and exogenously, right? Uh, someone invents the microchip. Someone invents the cell phone. Someone invents uh, machine learning. You know, whatever it is, right? We're all kind of... And there's two ways to look at that. One is um, we're all shaped randomly by technology, which is if you believe that, then there is no way to forecast anything, right? You just have to wait. We're all sort of passive recipients of these external accidents, and uh, and it pushes us different directions. Um, I tend not to be in that camp. Um, I tend to be. Uh, I tend to believe that the causal arrow is much the opposite. Rather than thinking so much about how technology shapes generations, I think a lot about how generations shape technology. That is to say, whichever social mood or whichever generational change is currently in play, that takes whatever new discovery is out there and uses it in a way that serves its purpose. Right. So a good example of that was the invention of the microchip. Uh, we really got underway uh, beginning in the 60s, but it really got underway in the 70s. Uh, and it redesigned the computer. And lo and behold, a boomer generation, which it has always been celebrating individualism and escaping from these huge A-frame uh, organizational pyramids of their World War II winning parents, as well as their big mainframe computers, suddenly thought, right, with all of their rebellion against authority and rebellion against the middle class and rebellions against anything big, got a great idea. Let's let every person have their own computer. Let's call it a personal computer, right? And so it became a theme of liberation. And, and that extended for the next several decades. It was the personal computer. It was 1984 wasn't going to be like 1984, which is a directly anti-Orwell, uh, if, if any of you remember that ad that came out at the time. Uh, that, was an, that was a slap against an Orwellian future. And we had three or four presidents after that, starting with Reagan and going through Clinton and into D.W. Bush, who all proclaimed that the microchip would topple authoritarian dictators all over the world, right? There'd be no more authoritarianism in America. And by the 1990s, you had Francis Fukuyama talking about the end of history. Governments would fade away. It would just be individuals contracting with each other in this libertarian paradise. We'd each, I don't know, I'd be in a Starbucks in Prague, and you'd be in some place in, I don't know, Kuala Lumpur, and we'd just be contracting with each other, right? We'd be kind of rootless. We'd have an infinity of uh, possibilities open to our lives. And this was this community-less world that was highly celebrated back then. Well, then came along 9-11, came along the fourth turning, right? And now we find ourselves back into this tribal world with a new generation coming of age. And guess what? All these dictators and authoritarians, they suddenly love the microchip, <laughs> <laughs> it allows them to surveil their own people. It allows them to put up walls. It allows them to orchestrate hysteria on their social media networks. They think it's beautiful, right? So do you understand the point I'm trying to make? Societies with the, in the certain social mood, with the kind of generation that it has coming of age, kind of you know generating that new social mood, 
makes use of technology, they get out of technology what they want to get out of technology. And it's the same thing, the same way with radio, it's the same way with automobiles, the same way with the history of almost any of the technologies we, we think, you know, we talk about. Uh, today, we think that, uh, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, which contrary to what most people think, is not just, you know, these large you know, uh, word generators that have come out recently it has been building up now for 15, 20 years. I mean, there's all this, all this money that's gone into to, to AI and machine learning. But suddenly the public is, is understanding it and everyone's afraid it's going to make us into a totalitarian state. Uh, but if we had had the same excitement back in the 1990s, we'd be celebrating how AI was going to individualize the world, right? <laughs> it was going to do, we would have done the opposite, Brendan. Do you see what I mean? And so, that's my general point. Now let's bring it down to, to Bitcoin. I mean, just the whole subject to cryptocurrencies. Uh, can, I comment, can I comment before we go into Bitcoin? Yeah, go ahead, I think you made a profound point. I just want to respond to that. So I entirely agree with your thesis. I started trying to critique your arguments by saying, well, the internet's going to change everything. And then the more I sat with your material, I understand. I now understand it more as a symbiotic relationship where the people implement the technology or adopt the technology based on the mood. Right. right. To your point. But however, in your argument with the microchip down in the future, because we accepted the microchip into our life for reason A, uh, 50 years later, now it's being celebrated for reason B, which might be opposite to that original reason. And so totally. the technology shapes history, just like history and generations. It's the same with technology. And so I, I'm totally yeah. on board with you on that on that piece. And we can go into Bitcoin in a second. But I would say I, I totally hear your point that maybe the early Bitcoin adopters want to see Bitcoin as more of like a Rothbardian hard money thing, individualism, which is true. There's a massive core to that. That is the beginning nucleus, but that doesn't tell the whole story. And eventually in the conversation, I want to pitch Bitcoin as an institution that actually does play uh, to the civic impulses that you bring up. But I, I'll, I'll I go back to you for Bitcoin. If, if you're willing to go in that direction, I'm willing to be much more favorable here yeah. <laughs> about about the possibilities for Bitcoin. Um, because we're moving, if you think about where we're going from before the fourth turning to where we're going to be at the end of the fourth turning, right? Say by the mid 2030s, we're going to move to a world that's more like the, the late 1920s, the roaring 20s, you know, the barnstormers and the gin fizz crowd and the rum runners and, you know, all the rest, right? To a world much more like the 50s, right? So think of that transformation. And that transformation I talk about, I think, chapter eight in the book, I say overall it's a transfer transformation from individualism to community. That's the master trend. And then within that, I talk about other trends. One is from, um, from privilege to equality, right? In these periods, equality always grows uh, by Gini coefficients of income, Gini coefficients of wealth, but also just the ethic of social equality. People wanting to be more like each other and fit in more. Now, a lot of Xers and boomers won't feel totally in place in that world, but I think millennials will love it. You know, FOMO, no more FOMO. You know, <laughs> yeah. you'll have a house like all of your neighbors, you know, just like the little ticky tacky houses of the 50s, and you'll be happy with it. So all of these boomers who hated the middle class, I mean, hell to them was uh, Pleasant Valley Sunday, you know, charcoal burning everywhere, right? But millennials want a middle class. They're, they're, you know, you talk about middle class, their response is, where do I sign up? Sounds great. So 
you really have to think about that, first of all, the, the principle of equality. The next is from defiance to authority. These periods always end with this huge new authority being imputed or endowed with national institutions. Every fourth turning has ended that way, right? Where you have this suddenly, the, these by dint of the, of the violence and the horrendous struggle to get through the fourth turning, suddenly these, these principles of authority, they're much more respected again. Um, the other is from de 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 deferral to permanence. How do we actually create permanent institutions that actually work for our future, that take us out of debt, that actually build stuff for our kids, that make the world a better place further down the road, where we don't do that today? I don't even want to talk about it. I, I do it every year and it depresses me, but every year I do a big a big deck for, for our clients on you know the, the latest CBO 30-year projection. And it's just a thoroughly depressing experience, <laughs> you know? And, and so, and then finally, from irony to convention. And, and you're right. One big trend that happens from the beginning to the end of a fourth turning is the society, society runs in a more progressive direction in the economy, toward equality, toward progressive new innovations in that sphere. But it moves actually in a conservative direction in the culture. And that's yeah. actually the opposite of what everyone thought we wanted 20 years ago. Do you remember when all the Democrats were trying to be fiscally conservative and all the Republicans are trying to be hip in the culture? Um, that is going to be a very different tide. And that's where, I, that's where I see America going. That's where I see a lot of the world. That's where I see it already going, not just yeah. where it's going to go. So this is how we need to talk about Bitcoin how can it be a trusted, authoritative institution? I think you're totally correct that when Bitcoin started, you know, with Satoshi, I can't even remember his last name, but you, you know, the, the famous paper. And you remember the first sentence was, how can we create a currency in which trust is unnecessary? I mean, that's basically the premise of the whole thing. How can we create a social system without trust? Well, look, Brandon... Uh, a fundamental a fundamental premise of the fourth turning is that we move toward this huge increase in rediscovery of social trust. So that I, I think I've given you enough to talk about. So yeah, 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 Brandon, yeah. Let's let's just I'm, talk about how Bitcoin's an institution and um, the trust around Bitcoin. Let's just dive into that. Just all right. Forward. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually wrote down your bullets: equality, authorities respected, permanence. From irony to convention. Was there one more? Um, I think equality. Uh, the other uh, and the other was authority. yeah, permanence. I think you mentioned it. Community, yeah. equality, okay, authority, permanence, and convention. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just go through those because that that's a different way of getting to this the same argument I've referenced. So uh, equality is a big one. As a millennial myself, and knowing some younger people, most people feel there's no hope in the world. They feel that the older generations essentially locked them out of a future. They're going to be less well off. You know this. You you, you rant on this. We grew up with 9-11, global financial crisis, COVID. Now, how am I going to buy a house with the mortgage rates, right? The list goes on, the 1%. All these are symptoms of that same feeling. And properly understood, Bitcoin is a set of rules for a monetary asset with no rulers. And so the trust shifts from old white guys in the, the ivory tower managing the money to a more mathematical base, something more akin to TCP IP, like an internet protocol. You trust the internet packets go because it's this global neutral infrastructure. 
And the, the trust with Bitcoin is that you don't have to trust central planners to manage the money appropriately. The trust is in, in the math, right? That's, the, that's an enormous shift. Could it, be, could it be wrong? Yes. But that emerges out of the digital era. And young people today trust, uh, especially the really young people, they're going to trust Bitcoin more than they're going to trust their local bank branch, in my belief, because Bitcoin works immediately. It, it's how it's supposed to be on your phone. They're never going to go to a bank branch and they're going to only have these echoes of mismanagement and inflation and how that put an imprint on their families, especially the homelanders. So are you. And so, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I guess I could just ask hypothetically, um, you know, over the last 20 years, how many people have lost their savings in a bank account versus in a, you know, Bitcoin brokerage? You know what totally. I mean? Um, and so that would be the first question I'd ask. In other words, is that really the fear? I don't think so. Uh, that that actually the the bank will will abscond with with their savings. I, I don't think no, no, not not commercial banks. Uh, right. Commercial banks uh, separate. I I agree. Today, there's more fear around mismanaging the asset itself and losing it than a bank stealing your money. Um, I think as we uh, move forward towards a sovereign debt crisis, which feels almost inevitable at this point, I think that will start to shift. But what Bitcoin replaces is the issuance of money. It would be like gold is a commodity based money, which we use for a long time. And then we put fiat money to reference that. Um, Bitcoin is more like the gold, uh, a digital commodity based money that, um, you know, gold's relatively equally distributed around the Earth's crust. You know, you know, it when you have it, all those different monetary properties that make it good. Uh, Bitcoin's more like a digital version of that. And so, um, commercial banks will still serve their function, but we don't have to trust central banks to manage currencies. And it's easy for us to uh, miss this one in the U.S. The dollar is by far the best currency. Uh, U.S. debt is still the best uh, debt around the world. And so that's easy for us to miss. But however, if you look abroad, currencies are blowing up all over the place. And we see an extremely high correlation of Bitcoin adoption in countries that have poor local currencies and areas with high authoritarianism, which could be viewed as lack of free speech or capital controls or various things like that. Oh, the, the, yeah, the, the problem being if they're really authoritarian, they'll just ban Bitcoin, right? That's, the, you know, say you look at China, for example, I, I don't believe it's legal in China, is it? Um, it is, it is. They changed I, their mind. Oh, they did. Is it? Is it uh, totally legal? I mean, people can... Probably not. Yeah. I, uh, I trading that. it, buying it, selling it is totally legal. They put they, they made it illegal and on illegal multiple times. So the meme in Bitcoin land is like China is just making it up and it doesn't make a difference. But yeah. here's a here's a tangible example. Nigeria tried to shut it down when they launched their own central bank digital currency. And that act led Bitcoin to skyrocket. The poll I saw was between 25 and 30 percent of Nigerians had some exposure to Bitcoin. And that was in response to a, a central bank currency being pushed onto the people where there was no will to adopt such a thing. And right. so I think, yeah, it's a big so, shift from state-based so, money in the last couple hundred years. Go ahead. I mean, Bitcoin, I think, would still be, I mean, any any kind of, you know, kind of chain block currency. I mean, however you want to think about this technology, but it would require... Uh, guarantees by the political community. I mean, for example, um, people might fear all kinds of things about it. I mean, I say it's transparent, but uh, I think it's, it's still not even transparent to me what the supply of Bitcoin is, how much it costs to mine it, uh, who has the special algorithms to do it, 
whether or not it might split into two Bitcoin. You know what I mean? They're just, it's most, I think it's fair to say, Brendan, no one understands at the top how this thing is actually run. Uh, I agree. Gold is a little different. I mean, absent a supernova, we do not create new atoms of gold, right? So uh, that would do, a, you know, that that would not be good for life on Earth if we had another one of those. So, you know, that is, that's a pretty good guarantee. Um, but Bitcoin, I'll be, it's way beyond me, uh, you know, who... Who profited when it first started? Who still profits on creating it? Who, you know what I mean? So it would, it would totally be understand. a great idea if it had guarantees. And and uh, a little bit like, um, you know, the, 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 the whole issue of trust, right? Um, some, someone and some institution has to be behind it. And someone has to be accountable for that trust. Um, the uh, 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 and that's typically what comes out of a fourth turning is we have new institutions of trust. One thing that came out of the last fourth turning uh, was the uh, Social Security Act of 1935, which hugely took the risk out of life for middle class America. Uh, so much so that no one truly, I think, honestly, uh, uh, suggests scrapping it all. We may have to pare back on his generosity for certain groups. In fact, I'm pretty certain we're going to have to do that uh, just because of demography. But nonetheless, the whole idea of a safety net was hugely popular for that entire generation that came of age, right? I mean, there were Democrats until the day they died. They might have occasionally voted for a Republican president like a Nixon or Reagan, but they were Democrats, you know, down deep. You know, two-thirds of that generation voted voted was deeply democratic in their sympathies because they deeply favored that idea of a social safety net, which guaranteed a certain amount of social equality for America at the time. And I think that's what we're going to require in some way. Now, your technology may be very powerful in helping to do that in a way that guarantees people individually that they get to keep their earnings, right? They, they have a safe store of value, but that in in times of duress or in times of crisis, th- there would be something that would guarantee them, right? Uh, inflation is a big issue. You brought that up. I do agree that's a, that's a long-term threat. I don't think that's a huge threat at the moment. Um, but uh, I do think that if, they're, uh, if the United States doesn't get its debt situation uh, uh, under control sometime soon, and if both Republicans and Democrats continue to insist we can run four, five, six, seven percent of GDP deficits every year, that there will be ultimately a huge rush on the dollar, right? And that would be the sign of the decline in confidence you're talking about. I certainly pray to God that never happens because I think it would be a terrible tragedy. But there are scenarios in which what you're saying does make sense. Well, can I? Uh, yeah, thanks, Neil. Well, Brandon, let's, let's address uh, one of Neil's points, which is, you know, this idea that you need some kind of trusted institution for guarantees around Bitcoin. So let's talk about how Bitcoin yeah. uh, guarantees, so to speak, the rules of the protocol. It's kind of the decentralized institution, the rules without rulers and how that works with the nodes. Let's, let's go into a little bit of that to explain. Yeah, I, and I don't want to get lost in the technical details because Neil's point is extremely valid that the average American today, average person today feels that it's 
hard to grasp over my head, 100%. too complicated, right? That is the reality today. Fully, fully admit that. Um, the, the things you mentioned around guarantees and, and someone has to be behind it. I think that is the instinct in, in a fourth turning is to reach for the strong man to lead us through the dark night type thing. Um, I think Bitcoin can play that role if properly understood. Now, before I explain Bitcoin quote properly, um, you mentioned that nobody knows how it works. I don't think the average person knows how fiat money works, but we have enough embedded trust due to various reasons that we accept it anyways. Nobody knows how the internet works. We just know that it does work. And I think once Bitcoin, uh, if Bitcoin is uh, deeply penetrated into the populace, the same thing will occur. And I also think if Bitcoin is, let's say, a foundational aspect of the, the next seculum, um, to be determined. If so, it would feel crazy today, right? Based on history, it should feel like it came out of left turn, out of left field right now. And in maybe 20 years, it'll feel obvious. And so I think it plays that same arc. Now, why can we trust Bitcoin without an issuer? Um, Bitcoin is, if nothing else, it's a set of incentives that allow us to create a money that doesn't require a central party. And you can look at the math and the cryptography and all that stuff, or you can just look at the separation of powers. Uh, it looks a little bit like the U.S. government separation of powers. You have economic actors who owns the asset. You have the miners. They play a role in accounting and security and, and determining which transactions get added to the database. And then you have um, the developers or the community of people who make improvements or make changes to the protocol. And they each, they each share a balance of these incentives. No one's overpowered. And as long as that incentive maintains itself, um, there's no reason to believe that the number of units, 21 million, will ever be compromised. Or uh, you mentioned, what if it breaks into two? It's happened many times. Uh, but what we've learned from those experiences is that the economic majority votes, let's say it breaks into two, which Bitcoin do we vote with? Um, so far, the market has overwhelmingly chose one of those two forks and the rest turn into a long tail of less than 1%. And so I think that will continue. And so essentially, balance of powers. And as time goes on, our confidence in these, what we, what we consider constants in Bitcoin, to the outsider, they look not constant. I think the confidence in those becoming constant increases over time. Um, so, you also, I'll go. No, no, no. I'll, I'll let you finish. I, you're, you're just, yeah, just, just building steam. Cool. I'm already getting... <laughs> <laughs> we both can get, get ourselves talking, can't we? Um, you mentioned another good point, though, in times of crisis, right? I think that's a very important point because Bitcoin can look pretty Spartan. It looks more like a gold standard. And you might reference the 30s after 1929 and people saying, uh, we need to we need to have economic stimulus to get ourselves out of this. And I think there's a valid argument there. Um, the counter argument would be essentially we wouldn't have got ourselves in such a bad situation if we didn't get ahead of our skis financially with the 20s. But maybe it's inevitable that we do. Uh, but the point I was want, trying to wrap up here is that I think um, people often think about Bitcoin as all or nothing. It's either we're on a Bitcoin standard, there's only one money in the US and that will harm us in times of conflict or crisis. And I think that that's true. However, I think what's more realistic is that Bitcoin serves as gold did maybe 100 or 200 years ago, where locally there's different flavors. You can still be a US dollar that references Bitcoin. Maybe in developing countries with bad currencies, they're on Bitcoin and maybe they're dollarized as well. And so I think it's more effective to look at it as a patchwork of assets. Um, yeah, you saw sense. that you, you saw that new libertarian now is, is, is leading the race in, in Argentina. 
Right. He wants to dollarize right. the economy. I mean, that his that's his and and I must say how refreshing that is to hear an Argentina which has suffered under all these Pyrenees leftists and all these authoritarian rightists, you know, for decade after decade after decade. And here's a guy who just comes in and says, let's just do the dollar. You know, we're yeah. obviously incapable of running our own monetary policy. So let's just have let's have Powell run it. I mean, it's certainly better than anything we've done since 1950. Um <laughs> So that's interesting. And look, I think that here's, I, I think you're right about giving the ability of uh, particularly the rest of the world to choose. God knows there are places in this world where there is absolutely no way to turn. And right now, basically what they turn to are dollars. The vast majority of dollar bills around the world are in the hands of foreigners. Why? Because it is their primary means of, of transaction. It's their only store of value, right? Uh, and, and I feel terribly for these people. And, and for them, I can see it's a, it's a very easily, it's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's, a, safe, it's a it's a safe alternative for them when they have no other easy forms of transaction or, or, or store of value themselves. I will say that for the high income countries, you are going to have to do two things before Bitcoin, I think, becomes a real mainstream viable possibility. One, you're going to have to demonstrate that Bit Bitcoin has nowhere near uh, the volatility and the beta that it has now. I mean, it is a very high beta, high volatile thing, and it has no rate of return on it as an asset. So that, that makes it a hard argument, you know, just from a financial perspective of putting in your portfolio and the other thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to find some way of making sure there's um, there there is a a, a, a a circuit breaker somewhere that you can uh, trigger in order to prevent the kinds of things you were talking about the, the problems, for instance, with the gold standard. Now, one thing you could say is that, and, and uh, having said that, by the way, and I. <laughs> Maybe I'll come back and say that the problem in the 1930s, uh, when you say that America stayed on the gold standard, it might have gotten out of the Great Depression anyway. Um, the single biggest reason why Herbert Hoover did not get reelected is that he clung to the gold standard, I think. Uh, it, was a, it was the single best thing that, that FDR did as part of the New Deal. It was not the NRA. It wasn't a lot of other stuff. It was actually counterproductive. But getting off the gold standard hugely helped. And so you'll have to show if, if Bitcoin is not simply going to become an alternative currency to the dollar, right, to a fiat currency, uh, that it would allow for that, as, as even the gold standard did, you know, late in its existence, right? Um, uh, e even with central banks and so on, we're able to actually issue more credit than necessarily they had hard, hard, hard metal in store. So these are, I think, these are, I think, the the challenges. And I mean, long term, I totally agree with you that the most successful areas now are around the world in places which don't have adequate or anywhere near adequate monetary systems. And secondly, that the biggest opportunity for uh, Bitcoin in the United States would be. Um, uh, a crash with a big run on the dollar. And then there was a sense that uh, 
that fiat currency has been rendered unviable due to the excessive borrowing and the enormous unfunded liabilities uh, in the current, you know, system of governing. And I agree, that's a huge problem. That's a huge weight that sits over the heads of the millennial generation. Uh, and uh, I don't understand it. I wish it wasn't there. And Bitcoin would be an alternative simply to the extent that uh, you can inflate your way out of it, right? So I do think, and maybe my final point is that it may be in favor of your argument, and that is that one way in which every fourth turning, every time we have a fourth turning, one way in which governments, governments typically have to become very active, they have to spend a lot to be able to mobilize the population and suddenly get huge things done in the public sector, right? Um, that they incur huge deficits. And one of the ways they always get out from under deficits is through inflation. Um, not just in the fourth turning, but usually uh, during the, the first turning that follows. We had enormous inflation in, the, in World War II in the late 1940s, and early 50s. Uh, and that's at least part of it, along with real growth, that's how we got out from under the World War II debt. We did the same thing uh, uh, briefly during the Civil War. We did the same thing after the American Revolution and so on. And I would say that's that would be, but it would have to be part of a social contract, I guess is what I'm saying. It would have to be part of a social contract which is understood politically and requires these sort of political and institutional safeguards. It would have to be part of a new uh, contract between the citizen and state, and the state would have to have real skin in the game and ways of, of, uh, of guaranteeing it, accountable ways of guaranteeing it, right? Uh, and that's what I think people don't sense today. I mean, if you say things about Bitcoin, they sort of think, whoa, what is that? You know, it's sort of a secret alchemy or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Changing, but that's that's still the general consensus. Yeah. Um, quick point on clarity with gold. I agree with your your assessment. After 1929, gold held us back, and it was the right move to stimulate the economy to try and get us out of there. Um, I my argument was more maybe we wouldn't have gotten ourselves in such a bad financial collapse if we weren't already um, printing excessively and living fast and loose after World War One and in the 20s. So I would yeah, say I agree with that. Excess. But yeah. The problem was, is that everyone else went off the gold standard. We were the only person on it. <laughs> so we were like the sucker on the block. And, you totally. know, we, we had all the gold. Everyone else off the gold standard and all our gold started leaving. <laughs> and we took on the German debt. I mean, we took on everything. We took on everybody's debt. Uh, because we were by far the most dynamic economy in the Western world during the 1920s. Um, I think uh, uh, the something like uh, five out of six automobiles in America by the late 1920s were in America, right? I mean, just think about how uh, just on steroids American economy was in that decade, but it set us up for a huge crash. And the inability to... to uh, the inability to get out from under this huge implosion in credit and currency uh, after 29 was a killer. Yeah, it's a strong point on the prisoner's dilemma there. If you're the only one without the ability to inflate during a crisis, you're going to take the undue. In fact, you, you can almost say that the last 
the, the earliest countries to get out from under the gold standard did the best. I mean, France did very well. It got out from under it early, you know, and then Germany and Britain hang on for a long time. There's a little bit due to Winston Churchill, who was actually chancellor of the Exchequer. He used to say that was the single greatest mistake in his life. Um, no, not the Gallipoli campaign, not, you know, not other things we might have said. No, it was the gold standard, which he, he was his biggest single mistake. He, he wanted, he thought we could, he, we could stay, on, uh, Britain could stay on it. But that left America holding the entire burden. Prisoner's dilemma is correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, bringing it back to the civic institution point, one of your first points was authority is respected, something like that in the fourth turning. And I think there's an interesting thing here, which and essentially I would trust the U.S. government more if they didn't try to politicize the dollar so much. I don't like that the dollar is a tool of financial uh, control abroad. I don't like that it's used to steer things maybe against the, uh, the interests of the people. At least that's what at least the bottom 70 percent would agree with. And so. In that type of environment, if the money that was issued by the U.S. government was out of their control, let's say it was Bitcoin. We fast forward 20, 30 years. We're on a Bitcoin standard. I would trust the government to uh, respond appropriately in times of crisis the old way, which was tell them we're going to war and ask the people to pay their taxes or sell war bonds rather than this hidden inflation cost where we just run up these credit card bill wars um, from, yeah. the, from the 70s on, right? I think that symmetry between people or populace and state um, would, would do a lot to bring back trust I, because it would remove yeah. the excesses of that, that, that element. I, I agree with that. I mean, you think of all the things we did in the late 40s and 50s, um, you know, the, the Truman Doctrine, the Eisenhower Doctrine, you know, we, we, went into, we went into Turkey, we went into Italy, we went into Greece, we went to all these places to keep them from falling to communism. We rebuilt states around the world. You know, it's amazing. Uh, in recent decades, with the state building, no one can rebuild states. You know, uh, you know the, the 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 whole the whole Iraq and Afghanistan thing. Um, well, as I recall, after World War II, we did a pretty good job. You know, Germany, Japan, South Korea. I could go down a list, right? These are now thriving democracies, high-income places. What would they have happened without the Marshall Plan? Without our assistance? I mean, America back then, when I say authority, we made promises to do huge things, which today we would find unimaginable. And we actually kept our promise because we basically said, we're going to do everything necessary to do this. And all of America is behind us. And guess what? Over that period, when we were inventing miracle vaccines, we were beginning a program to put a man on the moon. We, I mean, we were doing all this stuff we balanced our budgets. I mean, think of that. And the American people went along. When I say trust, I meant we had solidarity, right? And that's what we don't have today. You're absolutely right. Leaders today try to do everything through smoke and mirrors, right? Uh, pandemic response. We're just going to create all this freebies, right? Stimmies. And we're going to flood you with it, you know? And Hey, your kids are going to pay it back, but you know what have your kids ever done for you anyway, right? I, that's kind of the approach we have today. Um, we need a new approach. And history suggests that it's only through the fourth turning process that we become the kind of country that can behave differently, right? Yeah. Um, we need to go through that collective rite of passage. Individuals don't want to go through that rite of passage 
and and nations don't either. But we're going to have to, and it's going to happen soon. I want to talk a little bit about you guys have talked both about like kind of this sovereign debt crisis. And Neil, you t- you said like I don't know what to make of this fiscal situation. I wish it wasn't there, but it is. And in your book, you say never before has America approached a major national trial with such a low rate of economic growth, with such meager savings rates, with such heavy public and private indebtedness, and with so little available fiscal room. Um, It seems like, you know, we talked about how technologies are chosen by the mood of the time or the mood of the generation. The mood is a lot of distrust, um, a lot of uh, for institutions, and you have this sovereign debt crisis or this huge public debt problem. And then you have millennials. And in the book, you talk about how, you know, millennials, you know, are most likely to believe that the current regime is fundamentally broken and needs to be overhauled, if not replaced. This may require granting extraordinary powers to one side or discarding precedents and procedures that impeded the establishment of the new regime. So can't you see a situation where, you know, the sovereign debt crisis, it kind of spirals out of control. It is another catalyst and it leads to millennials not trusting these institutions at all as the dollar gets sacrificed and them turning to a brand new regime. I think this is why, like, looking through a Bitcoin lens, it's hard for me to see what other regime is out there that's not something like a global CBDC system full of surveillance that, that, or some other system. Yeah, and and that's the case where I agree with you. I mean, I, I totally agree with that, and I do agree that if that happens, if that actually is the... The, the killer, if we cannot gain control of it any other way, then that will be part of the package, right? Mm-hmm. We will find a way of putting that completely beyond our reach in some way. We will reinvent the circuit breaker, which may include the new regime, may include a different monetary regime entirely. I, mm-hmm. I, I have no problem with that. Um, and, and it may become necessary. Um, but... <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of other things that's going to be happening at the same time. Let me put it that way, and 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 I would it would be much more likely that that would be part of it. Should the should that be part of the problem? And if if right now, Brendan, as you kind of conceded, the US dollar is not doing badly, you know, um, and it shows no sign of diminution in strength. Uh, there was that recent um, uh, BRICS uh, conference in Johannesburg. And I think, you know, China and Russia are trying to get everyone on the south side, you know, that they're they're all filled with grievance about all these, you know, high income Western countries. Uh, But it's very political. And I don't think they're going to have much success uh, because I think so many of the countries there um, themselves depend upon the dollar. Right. Argentina is a good case. I mean, I just think of this guy who wants to dollarize the the, the Argentinian economy. Argentina is one of the expanded member states that they want to bring in. You know, mm-hmm. the point the point is is that right now most of the BRICS are hugely dependent on the dollar. It's just the ideal safe haven currency. The advantage is you can effortlessly get a return on it. It's uh, the most liquid market around the world for investing. And the great thing about it is it's not in your currency. And when anything bad happens in the world, even if the U.S. causes it the dollar goes up in value, right? I mean, that's the color. I mean, that's like the ideal safe haven asset, right? And that's because America remains a very powerful, stable country, not just in our own eyes, but in the eyes of most of the people around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. If that changes, and it may, 
uh, or if America goes through a struggle in which its survival is in doubt in some way, that could that could easily present a very different situation. Um, and and look, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, those of us who heard the GOP debate, you know, uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, talking about we need a revolution. This is a dark moment. And, and I think that reflects a little bit the quote you were talking about. A lot of millennials do see something fundamental needing change in this country. That is, that is kind of a regime change. I, um, many of us may not agree with exactly the, the package of changes that he wants to bring to that revolution, right? Um, uh, as, uh, as Nikki Haley was saying, you know, do you want to feed all these countries to aggressors? And so people might actually say, this is not the kind of revolution we need. But that single insight that this is not a morning again in America, this is a dark moment for America. And this is a, a group of young people looking for something fundamental to change in terms of our regime. I am totally on board with that. I see that. And I think that is in our future. And that's a lot of what my book is about. Yeah. yeah I when I look, yeah. oh, sorry, can I comment on that one quick? Yeah, of course. Uh, for me, when I see the sovereign debt crisis, I, I see how if, if there's a sovereign debt crisis, we'll have increased odds of reimagining the money, like you said. Um, but to me, it also signifies an increased chance of a global hot war and civil war. Right. When 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 that's heavy weights pushing us down or however the analogy, we just become so fragile and more volatile. The smallest little thing could set it off. Um, and yeah. so I could see that going in any direction. Regarding yeah, I, the I, U.S. dollar. I'll go. In, well, in my and I, think, I can't remember what chapter was. I think it was chapter seven. And I talked about the rest of the fourth turning and what's likely to happen. I talk about three things, <clears throat> external conflict, internal conflict and another financial crisis as an accelerant, right? It would accelerate either of the above. And I think that's an agreement with what you just said. In other words, it would make us much more apt to go in either of those two directions. Um, and I exactly. kind of explained why. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. And US dollar is king, no question about it. That I think that speaks to the power of network effects and how the big get bigger, and in this case, the dollar. Uh, liquidity begets liquidity, for example. Um, it would certainly be the last fiat currency to fall as it looks today, barring a, a hot war with China that we lose or something like that. Um, I think it, what, also what I see, something, it also says something about a very durable idea that continues that America set up after World War II, but that was the idea of a, a peaceful world order with rules, you know, sort of a liberal democratic world order with rules. And we, we like to think here, like, who cares about all that crap? You know what I mean? Let, let's just do what we need for America. And it, but we have no idea. I, one thing that just amazes me about Americans is that when I talk to my friends abroad, you know, I talk to Germans, I talk to Indians, I talk, to, they know so much more about America than we know about them. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. They know everything about America. They know American politics and so on. We know nothing about them. And what we don't realize is how much the rest of the world still depends upon America. We, it depends upon the order that we created. And the reason they know so much about us is because they depend on us. It's, it's, um, uh, we create a world which has not only been good to the world, but because it's been good to the world, it's been good to us. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is the opposite of a prisoner's dilemma. This is... Uh, 
I don't know. What's the game theory word for it, Brendan? You probably know it. It's it's the, <laughs> it's the uh, the the not the tragedy of the commons, the com the comedy of the commons. Anyway, it's it's things going in the right direction, but it's when you create a system which is good for everyone, and therefore it's good for yourself. And I think America has done that. The rest of the world still sees that in America, and still relies on America. And one thing I do say in the book is that this fourth turning. If it goes badly, it's not just going to go badly for America. It's going to go badly for the entire world. And that's not been true of earlier fourth turnings, right? I mean, if the, if the Civil War had turned out even, well, it was already pretty horrible how it ended. But if it had tended even more horribly, it wouldn't have affected the rest of the world much, right? Um, I think World War II is much more consequential. But this one now... Um, there is no other player out there, right, to fill that same role in the world. But yeah. nature abhors a vacuum, and some player will enter that role. And if it's no longer us, it's going to be someone else. That's right. So I agree with most of what you said. I want to pick on one point, though, which is that uh, what we did abroad, let's say, after World War II, from Bretton Woods on, right, we create an international trade situation, especially from the 70s on. Um, and it was it was good for America, the institution, big, bad America. But I would argue, at, at least from the 70s on, it hollowed out the middle class the way we architected the system, where we would essentially export inflation, right? We would send our jobs abroad and we would get cheap goods in return. And the profits from those uh, countries abroad, they would recycle into U.S. treasuries, which would prop up our debt and the cycle continues. And I think that worked. But then... Now we're seeing the, the lack of our middle class, the manufacturing, all those jobs that left us, they're left with nothing. And that's the source of this pain and, and populism that it's continuing to grow. Yeah, I, so essentially, I, the cause of like the, the positive part created a, a future problem for itself, inevitably. I, 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 I agree with that. I think it became increasingly unbalanced as the decades went on. Uh, and I think a, a terrible thing happened when China was led into the WTO with no requirements. I mean, the whole idea of being part of the World Trade Organization is that you were going to play by the rules as a democratic nation state. And for instance, when you put on a tariff, you put on a fair tariff, you couldn't just informally tell all the firms in your country, oh, don't buy from that country, <laughs> you know, <laughs> without having a tariff. I mean, in other words, the, the whole trade rules regime did not work for an autocracy. It could evade all the rules of that. You see what I mean? And, and this is a horrible mistake. Uh, and that really was the way we started the 90s, which is really when the thing began to go really off kilter. And I, I do agree with you. And, and the, it, it's also the fact that the, in the original Bretton Woods system, there was not supposed to be any real cross-border capital movements, right? It was designed to just be a trade regime. They never really imagined much cross-border capital flows. But after, you know, Nixon went off the gold standard, and even more emphatically during the 80s and 90s, huge amounts of capital flows began to go back and forth in the world. And guess what? We could run these enormous deficits and, uh, and import much more than we exported, right? And, uh, and it created an entirely unbalanced economy. Um, uh, I think what I meant by the, the order that we created being very important to the world was, was not 
just the economic order, but just the international political security. Uh, and I think that has been important for the world. But again, even that's dysfunctional. I mean, you could say, well, that allows NATO never to bother about their own defense. You know, so they've become this completely atrophied, you know, region of the world where they don't spend anything on defense. Why? Because we've guaranteed it. Um, and and these are inevitable byproducts of of being the creator of order, of being a hegemon, of creating an empire, right? You might say it that way. Um, the problem is, if you don't create an empire, someone else will, right? And um, I don't know. You, you, maybe you have a reply to that. I, I actually don't really. <laughs> um, uh, but but we, when we got into this, uh, we were not seeking to become an empire. We just wanted peace. We wanted order around, around the world in a world which seemed to be crumbling. You know, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, we just wanted a, a peace, right? And I think that was a, that was the attitude of Eisenhower and Kennedy, and 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 you know those presidents. Um, they they wanted a world which we could just w worry about becoming more prosperous. We were interested in technological progress. We were interested in prosperity for our citizens. We we're interested in, um, I don't know, I think all the things that we thought democratic nations ought to be interested in. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have a good answer for you, but I have some comments on globalism and where, where this all ties together, which is that I think uh, global trade as a percentage of GDP or cross-border trade as a percentage of GDP has been declining for about a decade. And so I think we've peaked for at least now. I think rising China, Russia, Ukraine, BRICS currencies, Middle Eastern oil trade shakeups, all these things are symptoms of a fracturing geopolitical order that the U.S. established. Now, does that mean someone else takes its place? Right now, no one has a chance. Maybe in 10, 20 years, someone could emerge. I'm not sure what will happen. Um, but I do see in a multipolar world, which I think is the inevitable next stage, maybe before the peak or after, I don't know. Um, in that world, I think a monetary system that uh, is neutral will benefit greatly. And in, in that situation, if the US and China is doing trade, who, whose currency are we doing trade in? If you're buying and selling oil, whose currency are you, are you doing that in? Right? In those type of situations, let's say Bitcoin is uh, 10 or 100 times larger than it is today, where it can actually uh, support that type of trade. I think it would, it would take the lion's share of that trade because it's neutral. And assuming trust uh, increases with market cap, which I believe that it would. Uh, and so that's kind of how I see that part. And if I look ahead to the far future, I think this is um, I think this is an OK period. I think retrade with your neighbors. I think America comes out on top if we fracture and we go into a multipolar world. We have everything we need on this hemisphere. Uh, Canada and Mexico being huge trade partners. We have food security. We have energy security. We still have the uh, innovation and uh, the brand of a country that people want to move to to change their life. And so I think that engine alone um, can really put America into the next yeah, phase. I'm in a good place. Assuming we aren't uh, so internally divided that we can no longer function, a hundred percent. And uh, you know, if 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 we have a crisis domestically that even requires us to stand down for six months around the world, this is going to be a different place, right? And that's what worries me. Um, 
I do agree with you totally. I think that what we're experiencing has huge parallels, as I point out in my book, huge parallels to the 30s. Uh, global trade as a share of GDP peaked uh, in the 1929 uh, before declining. It did the same in 2007, right before the GFC. Uh, and we see the same thing. By the way, that's also when democracies as a share of the world's population peaked. It's been declining ever since, just like the 30s when, when fascism was taking over democracies in Europe and, and you know Japan was on the march in the Pacific. So we see all of these similarities, right, in terms of basic global trends. Um, and I would, I, I think you're right. It would be nice to look forward to a period after the crisis in which there is a, uh, a, a stable group of countries. Uh, it's often one country or a small group of countries. Usually one of them is stronger than the rest, but there are very few times in history when I've looked back, you can find a, a large number of nations together running a stable equilibrium. It just doesn't happen that way. It's typically either one uh, uh, nation or one nation and a couple of closely allied nations, right, that basically runs the system. Um, and uh, if people have counterexamples that lasted for decades uh, of peace and prosperity, uh, I'd be interested to know what they are. But I, I haven't found many of them. Uh, and, 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 and I just think that's what I meant by filling the vacuum. Uh, you know, someone has to supply that. Uh, and and, and uh, I'm, I'm a very optimistic about America. I really am. I, I, I'm the same with you. I, I think we're in a very good position uh, economically in terms of resources. I agree with you. Um, and in terms of the fundamental culture and way of life we re represent, uh, I'm very positive. Um, but I do believe when you talked earlier about it's a dark moment in America, I do think it's a dark moment in America. And I do think that things may get a lot worse before they get better. Uh, but I'm very hopeful that it will turn out to be much better for all of us in the end, particularly for young people today. They really deserve to have their own future and the future of their own country to think about rather than just shoveling themselves out of the debt and liabilities that their parents have shoveled on them. That's just extremely yeah. unfair. Yeah. Can we, um, maybe let's, let's, let's maybe end the conversation on a hopeful, let's say <laughs> like a hopeful note. Let's, let's say that we, uh, I was doing my best there. No, yeah, no. Let, let's say we get through the fourth turning. Let's say we avoid an unfavorable outcome, you know, no weapons of mass destruction, no total war. Let's say we get through that, um, and go to the next first turning, um, maybe what does that look like to you guys? And you th brought up the millennials. It would be nice for them to be able to live in a certain way. Maybe let's talk about what that looks like to you, uh, you know, optimistic future, getting through the four turning, both Neil's vision and then also Brandon's. And then we'll, we'll kind of tie things up. Well, I have a chapter in the book. Uh, I think it's chapter 10, uh, where I actually talk at some length about what America will look like in the 2030s, 2040s, early 2050s, uh, first turning America. And it's a very positive picture. You know, I talk about a world in which the middle class is strong, uh, in which America is demographically uh, growing again, uh, an America where um, equality is uh, not just an economic reality, but a social reality. 
uh, that it hasn't been in a long time, and where millennials can finally live out a world of uh, their FOMO world. They won't miss out on being with their community. It will be a strongly communitarian culture. Uh, I will say this to all of the uh, Xers and Boomers out there, they might not find it as appealing <laughs> as younger people do, uh, meaning that it will be a world in which uh, the culture may seem tame. Uh, all the edges have been sort of, uh, 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 sort of blunted, right? And, uh, uh, but it will be a world in which individuals, although not so aggressive in making claims for themselves, they will together comprise a society which will be, again, capable of doing huge things again. In fact, it may be the next golden age for America. I talk about um, the idea of living communities that are both uh, sustainable and integrated with nature. I talk about exploring the outer planets. I, I talk about huge advances in knowledge, in health spans for people, and, and uh, longevity as well. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of I, I spell out in some detail what, what we may see in that, in that world. It will seem like a golden age, I think, particularly after the crisis, and particularly for the younger generation that's, that's young adults, and by that time, midlife, right? Raising families in that environment, just as, uh, just as the American high seemed like a golden age for anyone who went through the Great Crash, the Dust Bowls, um, and uh, the, the, the horrible uh, 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 catastrophe, global catastrophe of, of the Great Depression and World War II. Um, so that's what I look forward to. And um, I try to paint as hopeful a picture as I can there. Mm -hmm. that's great neil okay i'll try and paint my picture here um so i think we're going to go through some sort of civil war or geopolitical event i think central bank digital currencies will be tried in the majority of the world um i think that generally speaking they will fail um i think that people will will choose bitcoin over those uh central bank digital currencies which come at a very high cost to our individual liberties um, and I think that we will have a more a society with more equality at, at the end, but not equality in outcome, uh, only equality in opportunity, which is the best that we can hope for. And this comes on the backs of a monetary system with a single set of rules, no matter who you are. So we trust the protocol, not the people in charge of the money. And I think that fundamental difference sets up America for a new golden age, although I might call it a new orange age if we're going to keep on the, the trend here. <laughs> Get away uh, from the gold. Yeah. <laughs> and there will be symmetry or I should say increased symmetry between citizen and state. I think that goes a long way in restoring trust. I think a, a central institution uh, that, that steers our country in times of crisis is absolutely mandatory, um, but we have to trust our country to do so. Um, I also think this future has significantly less financialization. If you look at from the 70s till now, uh, finance as a sector went from like 10% to 22% yeah, or 23%, it's crazy. It's crazy. something like that. Uh, I expect to reshore some industry. Um, I don't know if that will last too long because it's very tempting to seek low-cost labor abroad, but at least for the next two, three decades, I think that will be true. I expect a uh, change towards a pro-natalist stance and understanding that uh, depopulation is actually a greater risk than overpopulation. I, I see more family values, and I honestly think that the Bitcoin community is already living in that future. 
Um, it's probably hard to observe because we're crazy people on the internet, fully admit that. But in, in the, the small circles, we're raising families, we're growing food, we're moving to the mountains, we're preparing for a, a much different world than we have today. Um, and so in that golden age or orange age, I think long-term thinking is required. You mentioned space and all these other uh, extremely capital intensive projects. And I think those only happen in a world where we have the monetary system under control, where families can save without their purchasing power being eroded, where capital allocators uh, can, can benefit from those great feats and they'll want to take on those great challenges. And so I view America's fourth republic as something to be optimistic about. And I believe it will be on a Bitcoin standard. Wow. Yeah, you know, that's that's a great summary. And one, let me just add this one thing because I, I think it was well said, and that is the industries in America that are now holding back productivity growth and living standard growth are all the industries that involve some sort of social dimension to consumption. You know, I think of education, both, you know, elementary, you know, just both K through 12 and collegiate. I think of social services. I think of construction, which has actually now had negative productivity now for a long time. And uh, I think of healthcare. That's uh, 18, 19% of GDP right there. And I think of finance, right? This, I'm sure I'm up to a good 50% of GDP by this point. That part of our economy has had zero or negative productivity growth, meaning if you ask Americans why they are not rising in their living standards, those are the reasons. They don't complain about enough flat screen TVs on their walls. They don't complain about the cost of a cell phone. I'll tell you, not the individual consumer items. They complain about not being able to afford their apartment or their home. They complain about not being able to send a kid to college, and they complain about not being able to afford health care. And that this this kind of consumption that we do in a set of community rules is what is utterly failing today. That's why we need a new regime that defines these community rules, right? And that's what we don't have. And that's where we hope we are in a redefined space where we can unleash productivity again and do so in rules that everyone can count on. And we're actually working in for everyone's advantage. I totally agree. And one comment on the real estate side, um, I think what's happened is that due to inflation and just general economic incentives, we've essentially monetized real estate and also easy debt and tax benefits. But we've monetized real estate. We've monetized big tech and they're getting an unshare fare of capital due to the monetary system incentives that we've created. And so in a world where storing your the fruits of your labor, your free cash flows at the end of the month into an asset that will maintain purchasing power, which Bitcoin theoretically will do, um, in that type of world, we actually demonetize real estate and equities, which offers up a much more uh, fair game for the, for the little guy to acquire a home. And um, yeah, I think it just resets the incentives towards saving and an equity-based culture instead of a debt-based culture. And just those simple shifts that we can get around, for example, BlackRock buying uh, individual uh, single family homes, right? We can all agree that's yeah. not a good idea. And there's so, a great, yeah, yeah there's, there's a great book on that, uh, on that general idea called The Rise of, uh, the Rise of Carrie uh, by Kevin Coldiron mm -hmm. and a couple of the guys, I can't remember, by three people. But uh, it's all about how as volatility in all markets is being managed and suppressed, it tends to transform all assets into money. 
and and it's a fascinating read for anyone who's interested in that. So it's basically all of these assets that shouldn't be regarded as money become money because the volatility is so suppressed. And, uh, and it leads everyone to be in more debt than they should otherwise have. It doesn't lead to inflation. It just leads to indebtedness, right? Uh, fascinating for anyone who's interested. But it it's sort of as in sync uh, or a little bit, it's compatible with your thesis. Yeah, that honestly, that sounds like an instant classic in the Bitcoin community. So <laughs> <laughs> you should you should look at it. It's fascinating. Uh, a lot of it is about uh, options trading and uh, what's happened to the S&P, but you'd find it fascinating. Yeah, same argument nonetheless. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for sharing your insights. I mean, I, my hope is that, um, you know, the future is an optimistic one like you guys paint maybe a combination of both of your guys visions and um neil thank you so much for providing this framework for for everybody to kind of think about the future to think about the past um and where we might be headed um obviously brandon thank you for summarizing his work uh, through the bitcoin lens i think it's helped a lot of people understand neil's work as well as bitcoin in general so thanks for coming on the show neil i know that you uh, recently uh started a Substack too um demography yeah. unplugged right so why don't you tell a little bit of people about that too it well it's just out there uh you can read what we do uh we 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 have a podcast every week we write articles on it we cover demography but we also cover um well everything that i cover in my books so we we like it we also do um uh monthly uh overviews of uh economic indicators so you know the the whole waterfront so people might enjoy it. And for now, it's free. So no downside there. Thank you, sir. Brandon, where can people find you? My camera just died out, but hopefully you can see That's all right. <laughs> we still hear you. Uh, first off, go buy Neil's book. The fourth turning is here. Uh, it's fantastic. The audiobook's great. He narrates it. Um, I read the first half with the paper and the second half in audiobook just due to family life. But both are awesome. Go pick them up. You can find me at brandonquidham.com, my name, or at bquidham on Twitter. Twitter is probably the best place. That's Seduculous. And it's sitting on the screen, so you don't have to hear me. Just take a look at your screen, assuming you're on YouTube. And big thank you to Neil. Uh, your work influenced me tremendously and sent me down tons of rabbit holes and enriched my life in many ways. So I really appreciate all your work, and I appreciate you coming and uh, having this conversation today. I learned Great. a lot. Thank, thank you guys for having me here. It's uh, uh, it's a, it's it's a great community. Uh, it's an interesting one, and you're you're dealing with fundamental issues. You know, how do we go forward from here? Um, it's it's uh, someone needs to be thinking about it and talking about it. So I'm glad you are. Appreciate Thanks, that. Neil. Really appreciate you coming on. You have a great day, and uh, keep writing, keep educating people. Both of you guys. All right. All right. Thank Take you. care, of you guys. Wow, well, that was a tremendous conversation between Neil Howe and Brandon Quidham. I uh, I think we might have got Neil thinking a little differently about Bitcoin. So maybe he'll uh, read a little bit more of Brandon's work. Um, and if you're not familiar with Neil's work, go check out his book. His, his book is fantastic. It's a great framework to understanding the larger cycles at play here. And I want to tell you a little bit about Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, PacificBitcoin.com is where you can find more information about the conference that Swan is throwing in beautiful Santa Monica, October 5th and 6th. Go check out the speakers. And if you're interested, you can use promo code SIGNAL for 21% off your tickets today. So check it out, Pacific Bitcoin. Thank you so much for listening and supporting 
recording the show, Swan Signal Live. Um, like, comment, and subscribe. I can't. I appreciate your support so much. Um, so thank you, and we'll have another show for you next week.